Um, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back together again. Um, if you were at service last Sunday, then you were probably wondering, where did all the women go? We were, at the, uh, all, we were at the women's retreat, our annual women's retreat, up in the Catskills, and it was awesome. There were about 60 of us there, and you just had the sense this year that it was something that none of us wanted to miss. Ruth was there. Her foot was hurting. She was there on a cane, and she was there. Um, Krista moved away, but she came back just to go to the retreat, and I was there eight months pregnant. Maybe it's because the theme this year was joy, and the joy was definitely palpable. Um, so I want to say a big thank you, a big shout-out to Marcy Miller for making it all happen as usual. Thank you. Um, and to Marcy's squad, so that includes Esther, and Jasmine, and Sam, and Kara, and Anka, and Nana, and Sean, and Kira. Um, all of you prayed with her and led discussion groups and everything in between, and it couldn't have happened without you. So um, thank you all who participated for making it the best women's retreat yet. I already can't wait for next year. Um, all right, so this is the um, second week of our eight-part series on the Book of Romans. Uh, on Sundays, as Phil mentioned, we're teaching from Romans, and then as a church, throughout our community groups, we're reading the Book of Romans, and we're only a week in, so it's not too late to sign up and join in. Phil kicked us off last week with a message on God's perfect love and his perfect justice coming together for our salvation, um, and he drew from Romans 1, 2, and 3. Um, this week, I'm going to be picking it up with a conversation about faith, about the gift of faith, and I'll be drawing from Romans 3, 4, and 5. Um, let's, so let's take it in three parts today, um, our conversation about the gift of faith. In part one, we'll talk about the definition of faith. What is faith? In part two, we'll talk about the purpose of faith. Why do we need it? And then in part three, we're going to talk about an example of faith. The example of faith. How do we receive faith? So that's the, the what, the why, and the how of faith. So let's dive in. Part one, the definition of faith. It's not a hard word to define. I think all of us off the top of our heads can come up with a perfectly good definition of faith. The Bible offers up one too. It's um, in Hebrews 11. There's a good one-liner on faith. It's quoted all the time and it's spot on. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance means confidence. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for. It's the conviction of the things that we cannot see. That's spot on. But I think that even though it comes from the Bible, it's actually not enough for us as Christians to define our faith with just that one line. We all live and operate by some sort of faith, to some extent, every day, Christians and non-Christians alike, whether we know it or not. So when you go to work in the morning and you cross the street, you have faith that the cars are going to follow the rules of traffic and not hit you. You know, when you get into the elevator and you go up to your office, you have faith that the elevator is going to take you there, that it's safe, that it's been serviced and maintained. So we all live and operate by some kind of faith to some extent every day, whether we know it or not. Um, so how can we as Christians define our greater faith, the one that supersedes the day-to-day? 
I had a revelation about this recently on my Peloton of all places. Um, the instructors are always encouraging us to have faith. And what I started to hear recently is this grasping, this struggling in their encouragement to tell me where I should place my faith, right? They say, um, you can do it, have faith in yourself or you've got this next climb, have faith in your strength, or you crushed your workout today, now go crush your day, have faith in the universe. It's in that grasping and in that struggle that I realize that faith demands an object. Without an object of faith, faith is utterly irrelevant. And so what really defines our faith then, what really defines our faith as Christians is the object of our faith is Jesus. Jesus is the very definition of our faith. Jesus, the answer to God's perfect love and perfect justice, just like Phil talked about last week, Jesus who died to save us. Jesus who rose from the grave and reigns as king. All right, now that we know what faith is and in whom we place our faith, there's one more thing we should talk about, which is the source of our faith. That'll complete our definition of faith, right? Faith, its object, and its source. Now, we talk about faith from our perspective, right? We talk about our faith, our hope, our belief, our conviction. So I think our reflex is to believe that our faith comes from within, that it starts with us. If you read the Bible, though, you'll see that that's not the case. It doesn't start with us. It doesn't originate within us. It originates with God. The Bible says that faith is a gift from God. All right, so in the reading, in Romans 4 and 5, Paul lays out this trail of breadcrumbs to tell us about this. All right, he tells the Jews about this, and he tells us about this, and he starts with Abraham, and he says, Abraham was made righteous with God. He was made right with God through his faith, and Abraham became before the law. Right, then came Moses, then came the law, which was needed so that we would know what our sin is. Right, and then came Christ, Christ and his sacrifice and the gift of saving grace. And he compares Christ to Adam. Adam, one man, just like Christ, um, and his one trespass brought faith, uh, sorry, brought sin into the world. And Christ, this gift, this, Paul calls it a, a gracious gift, an overflowing gift with his sacrifice, gave us saving grace, and he draws a line through all of that to tell us about the gift, to tell us about the gift that is Jesus, that the gift that is saving grace. And here's the thing. If saving grace is a gift, then faith also has to be a gift. If faith itself were not a gift, if we had to earn it or achieve it, then that would nullify the saving grace of faith, and it's always been this way. It's been this way since Adam, since Abraham, since Moses, since Christ. It's been this way since the faith of all of these men, and it's been that, and it's that way now with our faith. And Paul repeats this again and again all throughout his writings. He is most explicit about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith is a gift from God. God designed faith this way. He designed faith this way because if faith was something that we could conjure up on our own, that we could produce, then we'd be saving ourselves. 
And we need to know that we can't save ourselves, that God saves us. And we need to understand this so that we come into the proper posture of humility. Our pride tends to run amok. Our pride tends to run us, um, but there is a connection between our pride and our proper understanding about the source of faith. Paul talks about this later on in Romans. In Romans 12, we're going to be there in a few weeks, Paul says, God has told him to speak a warning about pride. And then Paul tells each of us to honestly assess our worth using our God-given faith as the measuring stick. There's a connection between our pride and our proper understanding of faith's source. Faith is a gift from God. All we have to do is receive it. All right, so let's put a pin in that thought for a moment. Um, we'll come back to receiving faith. Um, but for now, I, I want to move on to section two. I want to move on to the purpose of faith. We've established what faith is, right, in whom and from whom we get our faith. Now we can talk about the purpose of faith or the purposes of faith because the purposes of faith are manifold. We find it all over scripture. The Bible says um, you're saved by faith. You are healed by faith. Your prayers are answered by faith. The list goes on and on. But Paul, in these early chapters in Romans, is laser focused on one purpose of faith. And that's for righteousness. He says, by faith, we are made righteous. The reason for Paul's laser focus on faith for righteousness is his audience. He's talking to the Jews of the time who believe that keeping the law set forth by God makes them righteous, makes them right with God. And Paul really wants to go after this false belief. He says the law is good. The law is valid. Jesus came to embody the law. Um, but, but here's the thing, no one can follow the law. Anyone who thinks he can, anyone who says he can, is lying. And that's the very reason why God establishes the law through Moses, to reveal our sin. Because how do we know light but by darkness? How do we know we fall short but by commands to fall short of? But it was never God's intention to make us right with him through the law. It was a necessary part of his plan, but it was Christ, Christ who came to fulfill the plan, to become the law. And that's really what Paul wants to get across in these chapters, that faith in Christ is how we become righteous. All right, so let's now talk about this word righteous, because I've talked about it, um, but I haven't defined it yet. Well, unlike the word faith, you're not going to find a one-liner. You're not going to find some neat and tidy definition of righteousness in the Bible, you're actually going to find some pretty confusing stuff, like 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. It says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That's really what the Bible says. It's like, allow myself to introduce myself. It's confusing, right? Um, but let's take a closer look. Maybe we can get something out of it. So the verse is, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous as he is righteous, as Jesus is righteous. Jesus is righteous. So maybe the definition of righteous is Jesus. Maybe there's no other definition of Jesus, no other, no other way to define righteousness but through Jesus. And if you look around the Bible, you'll find that other verses confirm this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that God made Christ to be the offering for our sins so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. We try to define righteousness in any other way but this way, right? The Jews tried to define righteousness as following the law, and in doing so, they made the law God. I think in our time, we tend to define the word righteousness as this moral code that distinguishes between right and wrong. And while there's nothing exactly wrong with that, I think the problem for most people is that they don't believe, they, they believe that it's an innate moral code that just sort of lives within them. You know, they don't realize that the things that they believe, that we ought to look out for those lesser than ourselves that there's inherent value in all of creation, they don't realize that all of that was brought into the world through Jesus. They don't realize that Jesus is the source of all of that. And when we look inward, when we look at ourselves for righteousness, we make ourselves God. Jesus is righteous. He is righteousness. Romans chapter 3 says it so beautifully. It says, Paul says Jesus is God's righteousness made visible to us brought to light for us, made tangible for us. So let's now bring that to the purpose of faith. If the purpose of faith is righteousness, and Jesus is righteousness, then the purpose of faith in Jesus is to become like Jesus. I'm going to say that again. The purpose of faith in Jesus is to become like Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, all right, here comes the list of 20 thing, 25 things that I need to do to become like Jesus. There is a list, and there's probably way more than 25 things on it. And we ought to know that list, and we ought to follow that list. We ought to become more like Jesus. We're called to become more like, more like him as we walk, him, walk with him. That is a work that we are called to. But it's not what Paul's talking about, not here in Romans. Paul's talking about the one-and-done aspect of this. He's talking about that moment. He says, when we place our faith in Jesus, the righteousness is transferred to us. Just like that. Just like that, we are now flawless in God's eyes. It's finished, accomplished, done. The very moment we put our faith in Jesus. There's a fancy Bible word for this. It's called justification, and it's a one-time thing. Now, Paul uses the word gift again and again and again as he's talking about all of this, right? It's a gracious gift. It's an overflowing gift, the gift of righteousness given to us through the faith that's also given to us. It seems too good to be true. And so God knows that we have a really hard time wrapping our minds around this, right? And so that's why he'll talk about it in different ways. So that if the language of gifts doesn't pierce our hearts, maybe something else will. Maybe the language of accounting is what you need. So Moses, when he read uh, Romans 4 and 5, you may have noticed there was this word credit, credited, um, credits, It's an accounting word, and the Bible uses this word very intentionally to talk about righteousness in a different way, and it got me thinking that God is a pretty brilliant accountant. You know, on one hand, he's very precise. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. He knows every layer of our heart. 
You know, he knows each of our sins, the things we've done, or even just the things in our heart. You know, there's no hiding from him. He knows things that even we don't know. He's a very precise accountant. But despite knowing every single line in the ledger of our lives and condemning us accordingly, he loves us so much that he says, I'm not going to follow the gap accounting rules. Um, if you're an accountant, then you know that gap accounting stands for generally accepted accounting practices. And it's the standard that every accountant uses to balance the books. Following gap for God would mean our condemnation. That would be balancing the books. But that's not what he does. He loves us so much that he finds another way to balance the books. He comes to us as man, as Jesus, and he is condemned in our place. The books need to be balanced, and he does it in only the way that he can. Generally accepted accounting principles become God-accepted accounting principles. That's an accounting joke. You see what I did there? <laughs> and here's what our ledger looks like once we place our faith in Christ. So a classic balance sheet has two sides, a left side and a right side. You have assets on the left side, and on the right side, you have liabilities and equity. What happens when we place our faith in God? Well, every debt, every lease, every accounts payable is just wiped off the liability section of our balance sheet. And instead, God drops something into the equity section. He drops righteousness in there. And that balances the books. That becomes our net worth. That is an accounting illustration of faith for righteousness. Now, can you imagine if a corporate accountant did that? If a corporate accountant came into the books and said, I'm just going to wipe out all the debt, don't worry about it, it's okay, it's all gone, and I'm going to just drop you this thing called righteousness, and you didn't earn it, you know, you didn't accrue it, you don't deserve it, I'm just going to give it to you, that accountant would go to jail. That would be an accounting scandal that would rock the markets. That would be Enron, right? But that's what happened. When Jesus came to this world and told everyone about this new method of accounting, it rocked the world. When Paul spread the word, he rocked the world. Every time we tell someone the good news, every time we share the gospel, it rocks the world. God's special accounting shouldn't come as a total surprise to us, though, because it's, it's in us. Um, my group on Friday just read Romans 1 and 2 and just discussed it. And it says in Romans 1, we spent some time in this verse. It's so beautiful. It says, The truth of God is known instinctively, for God has embedded this knowledge inside every human heart. It says that God makes visible to us his nature so that through the visible we would understand and believe the invisible. And I think he does that through people. We're all made in God's image. We can see God's nature in one another when we're at our best. Um, so last Sunday, when I came home from the women's retreat, I came home, hugged my kids, then went right back out the door again. Um, my husband Jason and I went to a memorial service um, on the Upper East. Um, the mother of one of our closest friends um, had just passed away, and this was a service to honor her. And we were packed like sardines into this little chapel uptown. Um, but we didn't mind because together we just remembered this great woman. And her husband spoke, her children spoke, her brother spoke, her friends. 
and they talked about her great qualities. She was a great woman. Um, she was bold and brave and funny and stylish and kind and compassionate, and she was a wonderful and devoted mother. We were all moved to tears. There was not a dry eye in that chapel. And it occurred to me later, I'm sure this woman had flaws, like we all do. I'm sure she made mistakes, like we all do. I'm sure she had failures. But in this moment of mourning and celebration, we didn't talk about any of that. Her family and her friends canceled out anything that was bad. What was left, what was celebrated, was all the good stuff. At our best, we are God-like accountants. We confirm and we become evidence of his character. All right, let's move on to part three. So just to recap, in part one, we talked about uh, what faith is. We defined it. Part two, um, we talked about uh, the purpose of faith, why we need it. And now in part three, we'll talk about an example of faith, the example of faith, right? The what, the why, and the how. And um, in our example of faith, we look to Jesus, right? We look to Jesus in part one, part two, and part three. Now, some of you might be wondering, looking to Jesus as the example, but wait a second, isn't Jesus God? Why does Jesus need faith? Well, you're right. Jesus is God, and he has been since the beginning, but what about when Jesus came to this world uh, as a son of man? He came to live a sinless life. It was a life of faith, of perfect faith, so that he could become the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 12 gets at this dichotomy when it calls Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. The author meaning the initiator, the pioneer. He birthed faith within us. And the perfecter meaning the finisher. It's getting at this dichotomy, the fact that Jesus in his divinity didn't need faith, but Jesus, the sinless son of man, showed us what it meant to have perfect faith. So we look at his example. What did Jesus do when he walked the world? I'm going to call out three things. He did a lot of things, but I'm going to call out three things for us to look at today. The first is he knew scripture. He was steeped in it. When you read the accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels, um, you'll see he constantly quotes from the Bible. He talks about creation, about Adam and Eve. He talks about Noah and Lot and Isaac and Jacob. He talks about David and Solomon and Moses and Elijah and Naaman and Daniel and Jonah. He quoted from Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy and the Psalms. And when he was tested by the devil in the wilderness, he responded by quoting from the Bible. The Bible says that the word of God is the sword of the spirit, and Jesus picks up that sword, and he does battle with the enemy with that sword. He is in the word of God. The second is he prayed. He prayed, and he prayed. Jesus prayed alone. He prayed in public. He prayed at some of the greatest points in his ministry. He prayed at his baptism, before he fed the 5,000, before he walked on water, before he fed the 4,000. He prayed um, before raising Lazarus from the dead. He prayed before healings and after healings. He prayed for himself. He prayed for others. He prayed when he was dying on the cross. He prayed with his dying breath. Jesus prayed. All right, then the third thing I want to call out today is that uh, Jesus built the church, and this is something we have to pay close attention to. 
There's this moment in Matthew 16 where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? Because he hasn't told them, not explicitly, not yet. And Peter blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus praises him. He says, you are favored and privileged because you didn't come to that realization on your own. The father supernaturally revealed that to you. So Jesus gives him the name Peter. His name was originally Simon. He gives him the name Peter, though, which means a rock. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. So we know that even while Jesus was here in the world, he began building his church. Jesus had perfect faith. And these three things being steeped in the Bible, praying without ceasing, and building the church, they are evidence of his perfect faith. As his followers, these are the things we ought to do to receive the gift of faith, to bring it inward into ourselves. To not just know, but to believe and to trust, because that's what it means to receive, right? Not just to know, but to believe and to trust. So first we read the Bible like Jesus read the Bible. In Romans chapter 10, it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we must be in the word to receive faith. But even being in the word, even reading the Bible, isn't something that we can really claim credit for, right? I think there's a tendency to want to think that it's something we can work for or achieve, but we didn't write the Bible. And the truth in the Bible is revealed to us only through the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is receive it. That's number one. Number two is we pray like Jesus prayed. We pray because it's part of hearing, right? We pray. We talk to God. We listen to God. And there's also a really practical reason for praying. Because God established prayer for us as the way to get his help. And the apostles asked Jesus to increase their faith. We too ought to ask God for faith in prayer. For if you already have faith, then more of faith it will be given. And then the third thing is we go to church. Jesus built the church, and we must be a part of the church. We must be a part of his body. Church facilitates the first and the second thing, right? It facilitates the reading the Bible and the praying. But it's also another application of Romans 10. It's another way to hear. Because God speaks to us through the Bible. God speaks to us in prayer, and God speaks to us through other people. We've got to be in community. It's a crucial way for us to hear. So as I wrap up the message, um, I want to dwell on this very last point about church and being in community. And it's going to sound like an advertisement for community groups. And it is. Um, But I, I want to say something bigger here, so just bear with me. If you're here today, then it's because God's deposited something in you that must be attended to. Right? That's true whether you're just exploring what it means to follow Jesus um, or you're a longtime Christian who just yearns to know him better. And what I want to tell you is if the way that you're attending to this prompting from God is just by coming to church on Sundays, then you're missing out. Now, I'm not talking to all of you, but I am talking to some of you who are doing church like I did it 10 years ago. I was drawn here irresistibly by the Spirit of God, but I tried to play it all at a safe distance, keep it all at a safe distance from me, sit in the back, eat my bagel, don't talk to anybody, 
but I knew I was leaving something on the table. So after months and months of coming to church like this, I took a risk and I joined a community group. Now, the first one wasn't right for me. It was a great group. Warriors were made in that group, but it wasn't the right one for me, so I took another risk and I joined a different group. And this group became home for me. You know, we were a bunch of weirdos. None of us fit quite right, um, but we were all taking a risk and we all committed, and I mean really committed. We never missed a group, and it was in that group that I came to understand who God is and who he called me to be. Sunday was important too. Worship is important, teaching is important, but community group was the place where I got on that rocket ship in my faith journey. It's the place where I heard, and faith comes from hearing. So here's the advertisement. Community groups are just starting, and my group has only met once so far, so if you haven't signed up yet, sign up. You've missed almost nothing. You know, we have a long list to choose from, and if you have signed up, and you're not sure really how committed you are, give it a shot. Give it a real shot. Don't leave anything on the table. Receive what God has already given to you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've already given us. Thank you for the gift of faith. God, you tell us to receive it. But even with our part, Lord, we can't do it without you. We can't receive faith without your help. And so I just, I want to confess that and I want to surrender it all to you, Lord. Help us with our part. Help us with it all, Lord. Let there be a supernatural increase of faith in this season, Lord. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.